Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's our big time talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen live in Washington, D.C. The show is always brought to you by speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Hey, if you're a platform speaker or maybe you're a meeting planner, find one another at the robust online speakermatch.com. All right, get ready. We're going to blast off into today's show. You see what I did there? Because we're talking to a bona fide former American astronaut. She went up on the shuttle three times. Jan Davis has logged almost 700 hours in space. And she joins us on the program to talk about space and her upcoming book, Airborne. Jan Davis in Huntsville, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Burke. When you were a little kid, you grew up, if I have this correct, were born in, in Cocoa Beach, a stone's throw away from where all the action happened. So how much of that influenced uh, little Nancy Jan uh, to, to do what you eventually did? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, my father was very active in the missile program there at Cape Canaveral and at Patrick Air Force Base. And uh, I didn't know at the time that that would come full circle and I would be launching from that area. But I actually didn't live there very long. We moved, uh, I guess, when I was a year or so old. Uh, and then he was transferred to Germany to be stationed there. So it has been in my blood my entire life. And so I guess uh, flying and space and aviation all did influence me into to what I've become today. And eventually you wound up in, in Huntsville. Did you graduate from school in Huntsville, high school? Yes, I graduated from Huntsville High School. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's Rocket City, USA. So you have been kind of around it. One of the things I thought it was interesting is I read up on you, Jan. Um, and by the way, Nancy Jan, but people call you Jan. Where did the Nancy go? Well, my mother always wanted a daughter named Jan, and she thought Nancy Jan sounded good, but I've never been known as Nancy. And so if someone calls me Nancy, I know to watch out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even turn your head around if they call yeah. that name. They're probably a bill collector. That's probably a good thing. So, <laughs> so when I was reading about uh, the young Jan Davis, I saw that uh, you have a science background, which of course is huge in, in what you eventually wound up doing. But you didn't take that usual uh, sort of direct aviator, fighter pilot, top gun kind of way that that most of us who are, you know, uh, not uh, on the inside of NASA, we always kind of think those are those guys, right? It's the Chuck Yeager kind of guys that wind up in the space program. So tell me about sort of the circuitous route that you took, because it's different than a lot of those people. Yes, uh, when I was growing up, all of the astronauts, this, was, this would have been in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo days, they were all men and they were all military test pilots. And so when I was growing up, I didn't really think about becoming an astronaut. You know, I, I went the engineering route and the science route, and I was greatly influenced by all of the rocket science around me in Huntsville, but I didn't think it was possible for me to be an astronaut. So I didn't really pursue that until later. So it wasn't until 1978 when the space shuttle astronauts were selected, the first ones were selected, and they included non-military, non-pilots, they included women, they included minorities, and it was just a very different type of astronaut than we had had in the past. 
And that is, and I'd already graduated from college at that point. That is when I thought about the fact that maybe I could do that. You know, the timing was right. I had the right background. And so it was really those first six women astronauts selected in 1978 who inspired me to pursue that. How much back in that day, in the late 70s, how much of it was a, a good old boys club? And and look, I know you're retired from NASA, but you obviously still have uh, strong relationships there. I'm not sure how freely you can speak to that, but you know what <laughs> what was the temperature like in that time? If it always been guys and always been yeah. sort of that cocky guy thing, and suddenly you got women, you got minorities, you got non-pilots. I mean, was there hazing? Was there uh, <laughs> uh, you know a lot of pushback? Tell me what that was like. Paint that picture. Well, I really wasn't there then. I didn't come along until a later class in 1987. But I can just imagine it would have been a tough, uh, tough job to, to, you know, assimilate yourselves into that fighter pilot network and, and, and the good old boys network. But my belief is uh, then, as it was when I became an astronaut in 1987, the guys really uh, respected you for your uh, background, your education, you know, what, what you could bring to a crew. And they expected us to, to do our job. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of good-natured joking and that kind of stuff. But when it came down to being on a crew and doing your job, I mean, there's so much to be done. Each person has to do his or her job well or the mission won't be a success. So that's what I really appreciate about that environment. Even though when I was there, it was probably about half military. They really expected us and respected our uh, ability to do our job. And, and so I never felt, you know, like I wasn't being treated equally. It was, it was a great environment to work in. Jan Davis is our guest today. She's a former shuttle astronaut three flights into space and brand new book called airborne is due for release later this year. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. So you came in um, after the, that initial group. And yet, I mean, you were working again, if I've got this right, if we can trust what's on the internet, you were working there at Marshall space flight center for NASA as an yes. engineer in, in the late 1970s. Um, yes. Before you became an astronaut, did, did that smooth the glide path a little bit? Once you actually, you know, were accepted into the program, you think? I think so. I think being a NASA employee probably helped. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of rivalry between the different NASA centers. So there was a little bit of that rivalry between Marshall and Johnson Space Center. But uh, I had worked um, on some redesign of the boosters after the Challenger accident. So I think that respect of um, what I contributed to get us flying again also helped smooth the way when I moved to Houston. You know, you mentioned Challenger and obviously you worked, you were, you're a company woman at that time. You were right there in the middle of it all, mm -hmm. but it touched everyone in America. And I, I'm sure you've heard the stories probably tens of thousands of times from people that you meet. I remember exactly where I was when I saw that happen on mm -hmm. television. That's mm -hmm. a whole different thing for those of us who saw it on television to somebody like you who are right there sort of in the middle of it. Um, 
Tell me what that was like for you when that happened. Well, it was uh, a shuttle launch that we we at work were watching in a conference room. That's what we always did when there was a launch. We'd all go in the conference room. This is at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, which is responsible for the propulsion on the space shuttle. Right. So when the Challenger accident happened, we were pretty sure it had something to do with the propulsion, one of the propulsion elements. And um, watching that loss of life right in front of our eyes uh, was just devastating. I mean, I can't describe what the feeling was. And I had met some of that crew when I uh, interviewed to be astronaut. I didn't get selected the first time I was interviewed, but I met some of the astronauts who perished on Challenger. And uh, so it was just uh, a, a nationwide tragedy and loss of life. Uh, and for those of us in NASA, we wanted to find out the cause and fix it and get to flying again, because we knew that's what the crew would want. They would want us to continue flying, continue exploring and not let the accident uh, affect the trajectory that NASA uh, was going to take. And honestly, I mean, we, we astronauts understand the risk when we climb into the space shuttle. That doesn't make the tragedy any less uh, severe, but uh, I know and we knew that the astronauts would want us to continue flying and not stop because we had an accident. You said that, um those of you in Huntsville were responsible for what may have been at that time, as you thought, you know, the the chief cause for, for what happened. So is there second guessing? Is there finger pointing? Is there recrimination? Is there, uh, you know, collaboration to, to try to get it right? Is it a stew of all those things? You know, what happens internally? Yes, it was a stew of all of those things. We had the Rogers Commission looking at the accident and we knew the technical cause of it in the in the booster O-ring area. But we also knew the cultural, um, there were cultural issues across the agency. What do you mean <clears throat> that, by that, cultural issues? Um, there were some ways of making decisions or ways of, um, you know, communicating uh, those kinds of things were cultural, and um, those were were noted in the Rogers Commission report. And so it made us all better in terms of how we uh, designed something, how we brought it to a design review, how we made decisions, uh, how we made sure we included the right level of safety in right. those decisions. And uh, and so that was that was all a part of getting us ready to fly again and and not just the technical fixing the technical problems but also the problems on how we uh, made the decision to fly when we shouldn't have we had we had indicators that there were problems with the design and you know the philosophy was well nothing happened so it must be okay it must not be as bad as we thought because you know it was safe to fly and that uh that philosophy you know you just have to be aware of and and um, make sure that that what we call normalization of deviance doesn't happen again because it's insidious you know you can uh, it happens without you really noticing unless you're aware that it could happen 
that was was that 1985 86 86 january of 86 in fact right about this time it was it was january 28th of uh 86 and then you officially are named an astronaut the next year so right. i i want to go inside jan davis's brain a little bit um is it a mixture of wow i'm elated i'm excited this thing that i've been working for for several years has happened mixed with fear oh my god what have i gotten myself into i mean what do you what do you think when they give you the the thumbs up well it's interesting and this is in the book that i wrote um my mother called the day of the accident she called me because she knew i mean i had already interviewed to be an astronaut so she knew that was my goal yeah and she she asked me if i still wanted to do that <clears throat> and i said absolutely that's a reasonable question for a mom to ask, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And uh, and I, I didn't give it a second thought. It, uh, As I said, you know, there's risk in that business. And to me, the benefits outweigh the risk. And I was willing to take that risk. And I still wanted to, to be an astronaut. And um, so, yes, I was in the class right after the Challenger accident. I was the first class after the accident and of course we were all asked that you know why why did you want to do this since we just had an accident why would you sure. want to risk it and and fly but uh, we we all understood the risk we knew whatever solutions there were to fix uh the problem would make it safer to fly so that's even better you know for us well that was my next question is is you know you know that you're coming right after a tragedy like that mm -hmm that um things have been improved so does that does that reduce the pucker a little bit whenever you blast off or is the accident still in the back of your mind well it it really was not in the back of my mind it's kind of like when you drive a car do you think about a crash that might have happened you know two days ago in another county or whatever right 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 um it's 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 something that you, once you have accepted that risk, you don't even think about what could happen or what has happened. Um, you have confidence in the agency to make the right decisions so that it is safer to fly. Um, so I don't think it really changed my um, either comfort level or, or acceptance of risk level. It just uh, added to um, my confidence that um, I wanted to to be an astronaut and that I wanted to apply uh, and then I was willing to accept the risk. Jan Davis is our guest today. She's had a fascinating life, retired shuttle astronaut from NASA. Um, you worked on Hubble at one point before you were an astronaut and that yes. really captured, you know, the world's attention, maybe not necessarily in a good way. Um, you know, when, when you guys <laughs> yeah. are sort of in the middle of that kind of scrutiny uh, over Hubble, does that change how, scientists and engineers work on things or are you able to put blinders on and box all that out all that noise i think um in that case with hubble where we have the aberration spherical aberration in the mirror because we weren't able to test it i think it uh, emphasized how we need to test more you know there's so much analysis that you can do but in in the long run you just need to test the hardware and uh, that test would have been expensive to do because of the, the focal length is so long on the 
on the Hubble. Um, and so it, the Hubble mirror was ground to the exact, it was just perfection in how it was grounded, but it was to the wrong shape. And so uh, the other technical parts of the mirror were, were fabulous, but the, um, that problem with the shape of the mirror would have shown up in a test. So I think that has affected uh, our kind of our philosophy on, on testing. And so we, like for example, the Artemis that just launched, we, we looked at those critical areas that we knew we needed to test the hardware and not just prove it by analysis. So I think it's, uh, it's an engineering uh, balance as to what you test and what you analyze. And we have much better analytical tools now as well, bigger computers and things like that. So um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's something we all think about, you know, what, what you need to test versus what you need to analyze. You were a, a mission specialist that first flight, I think it was in 92. And then you went up again two more times and spent time on Space Lab, Jay. Mm -hmm. and, and you just talked about Artemis uh, last year. Do you do you keep up on uh, the inner workings and the science of how all that works? Or or are you kind of like the rest of us, you know, eventually the technology just gets behind you a little bit and you go, I'm just going to give the iPhone to my grandkid and have them you know, plug it all in. Oh, I stay involved. It's just uh, a passion of mine. And, uh, you know, I'm in Huntsville where the launch vehicle is being designed and managed. Yep. And yep. Uh, and I'm still doing a little part-time work with that. So uh, I, I may not know much more than the general public, but I... I do try to stay involved and, and talk to the people who are involved in the process. And, and I've been on the edges of the process for a while. So yes, I'm, I try to learn as much as I can about it. It's a, it's an awesome mission. You keep up on your stuff. Hey, I want to ask yeah. you about uh, the book a little bit. I know it hasn't, mm -hmm. hasn't come out yet. So none of us had a chance to, to read it, but it's called airborne and as fascinating as your life has been, and I know it's your life, Jan, so you probably go, eh, you know, it's just a thing. You know, the rest of us look at it and go, my God, this woman has done all these things. The book doesn't, it's not sort of a pat myself on the back because I was a shuttle astronaut thing. It's a whole different kind of look at your life and and maybe what led you to that life. So um, yes. since none of us have read it a little bit. Can you kind of fill our listeners in about Airborne and what it's all about? Absolutely. Um... I, I uh, was raised by my stepfather ever since I was four years old, but I knew that my father was a pilot in the war, World War II, and a prisoner of war. Uh, but I didn't know the details of it. He didn't talk about it, and I wasn't around him very much. So during the COVID uh, closure of, of everything in early right. 20, my uh, half-sister, who I also didn't know very well, uh, who was raised uh, around my father more than I was. Um, she, I asked her if she would send a copy of his prisoner of war journal, which I had seen, but uh, I didn't have a copy of it. So she sent that to me and uh, I had his flight records. So I was able to sort of do a deep dive on his career as an Air Force pilot. And at that time, Army Air Forces in World War II. And it turns out he, uh, he was a B-17 pilot, had trained, uh, my, he and my mother married the day before Pearl Harbor. 
and uh, he began training in January of 42 and became a pilot and ferried one of the airplanes over to England uh, by okay. way of northern route, you know, up Maine and uh, Greenland and Iceland, Scotland, and then over to England and flew from England in uh, B-17s and, and YB-40s, which was a B-17 variant. And then on his seventh mission, he was shot down. Uh, it was a mission. He was flying bombing mission to Germany, Castle Germany. And uh, uh, because of him, his plane being uh, one engine was out and one was going down and, and uh, having difficulty maintaining altitude and staying in formation. He right. ended up landing in a field in Holland and uh, was captured about 12 hours later by the Germans and sent to Stalag Luf 3, the Luftwaffe prison camp for, for Air Force uh, personnel. Wow. And so he was a prisoner of war for 22 months. And so uh, writing this book about him has been a journey for me because I have discovered him through this process and, and learned about what he went through, you know, his flying years, uh, being, being shot down, living in England, uh, and then being a POW in Germany and, and liberated by Patton's army. And then the rest of his Air Force career, he retired uh, as an Air Force colonel. And so all of that um, evolution of discovery has just been uh, amazing for me. And uh, I, I learned so much about him and about myself, really, because I, I uh, was influenced by him and his flying. And I always wanted to learn to fly because he was a pilot. And so that, you know that desire he was an engineer i'm an engineer so all of that is very interrelated which i discussed in the book you know his life and then how that intertwined with mine and and how i ended up doing what i was doing which was fly in space isn't that fascinating that he was not a big presence um in your childhood or even your adulthood right. and yet mm -hmm. you, you had these sort of parallel lives um of pretty amazing things 22 months as a prisoner of war and this is not this is not hogan's heroes this is rough stuff right <laughs> right i think uh of the prison camps the the luftwaffe camps were probably uh, they treated their prisoners better than than other camp prison camps because there was this mutual agreement between the germans and the americans about how they would treat their air force personnel so with uh, with that agreement and the Geneva uh, agreements and the supplemental food parcels by the Red Cross, uh, you know he 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 was able to stay healthy and and I think mentally healthy as well because of the things that were offered to him. The YMCA and the Red Cross together uh, provided instrument musical instruments to the prisoners. They provided. Uh, watercolors and, and colored pencils, uh, books, journals to draw in. And so his he, he was a cartoonist and artist before he was a prisoner of war. And so that's how he, I think, kept his, his mental uh, faculties uh, healthy was he drew and he painted and he wrote about his story. And uh, 
that's why I wanted to tell his story because it's uh, it's fascinating, but also well documented. And the the paintings he did were just beautiful of uh, what life was like there and and what flying you know getting shot down. He he painted all of those different scenes. So it's just a very interesting story of of how he survived that whole 22 months. Of course, he couldn't write about all of it because it was all censored. But, um, you know, from what I've read of other uh, accounts, you know, I think they were treated pretty well. uh, Considering he was in a a prisoner war camp, it could have been a lot worse. Yes, exactly. So how old a guy was he when he was shot down? So he was 24 when he was shot down. Oh, my God. He's a child. He's essentially a kid. Yeah. And and you were how old at that time? I had not been born yet. Wow. That was before I was born. Uh, Fortunately, he made it out. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Uh, (laughs) But, (laughs) yeah, it's it's, uh, there's so many incredible stories about these young men who fought that war on the ground and in the air and the support personnel because they were young. You know, they were the the enlisted and non-commissioned officers were teenagers. You know, they were 19 years old and and the pilots were, you know, the early 20s. And uh, they just did it day after day after day. You know, uh, it was it was such bravery and courage that those young men had. So he gets out of the military, he gets, uh, well, actually, he stays in the military, he gets out of, mm-hmm. of the prisoner of war camp, comes back mm-hmm. and, and stays in the military. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're born, but at some point, your parents divorce and you're how old whenever they split up? They, they, um, they actually separated when I was three and they divorced when I was four. Okay, so, yeah. so then he's, he's living somewhere else. Your mom remarries. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. much... Growing up, did you see him? Um, I saw him, you know, usually two or three times a year, you know, like okay. the holidays or, or some other visit. We corresponded a lot, though. Fortunately, I have those letters. So I have that correspondence. We we wrote each other a lot and we talked by telephone. Um, and when I was in college, when I was a little freer to and he had retired uh, you know, we, we were able to even correspond more and I saw him more. Um, and it's very interesting when I started flying airplanes, when I started taking flying lessons, we, I don't know, that was just something that we could, you know, share something and to talk, talk about, about and, and yeah. he, he, you know, that sort of increased the frequency of our communication. And I have drawings that he did of how he flew on instruments and he sent some of his, his pilot stuff to me, instruments and his helmet and all kinds of stuff. So it was really a, a neat connection that we're able to kind of reconnect through our flying. And you said that your dad didn't talk a lot um, about his experience in the war in the yeah. in POW camp. You know, my father mm-hmm. was also a World War II and then Korea War vet, and it was tough to get him to open up about it. And he didn't go through half, a tenth of what your dad did. Mm-hmm. But I hear that a lot from from folks our age who say, you know, that that was just sort of the stoicism of the time and mm-hmm. the way those guys comported themselves. What was there ever a time when when you did have a sit down conversation with him about all of this? Or did it all really come to you from these journals? 
The only time he ever talked about it was uh, one time I, when I was living in Houston, I, I visited him. He lived in Fort Worth and he showed his his uh, his POW journal. They call it a wartime logbook. Okay. He showed it to me. Uh, and as he was going through the pages of his paintings and drawings of of uh, what happened when he was shot down and what prison life was like. He had some portraits he painted of the different prisoners there with him. Uh, as he was going through that that journal, he he did talk about it. And as he was showing me the pictures and the paintings, and that's the only time he ever did was when he was he was going through that journal with me. Um, and I think it's because uh, he, he saw a lot of death and loss, you know, while he was flying his right. combat missions. I mean, every day he was he would lose friends and lo- and he could see airplanes being shot out of the sky, and it was just so Man. traumatic that um, I, I understand totally why he wouldn't want to, you know, well, sure. bring those memories back. Uh, and then the POW part, I think that was just. Um, something he'd really like to forget uh, yeah, yeah. and just, you know, move on. So I, I understand that. So I really didn't know much at all. I knew he had that journal and I knew he had beautiful paintings in it and, and pictures and uh, writing about life in, in the prison camp. But that's, that's really all I knew until I, I really got a copy of that and, and just started doing research on exactly uh, what his missions were like, what his bombing squadron was like, what it was. And I went over to England to see where he was stationed and, and what life was like over there in terms of the uh, all the bases and how they fought the air war from from there in England. Um, so, yes, it's been I knew very little going into this. And um, and I, I'm so glad that I that I delved into it and had the time to delve into it because of COVID I had had the luxury of time. And you use that time wisely. Um, and, and speaking of time, did he, how long was your father around? Did he have time to realize that his daughter was an astronaut? He did. Uh, he did not get to see me fly the first time he died in the summer of 92. My first flight was in September of 92. And while I was training for that first space mission, I found out that he was uh, ill. He had lung cancer. Hmm. And my sister told me, my uh, half-sister told me that he was in this hospital in San Antonio. So I found an Air Force pilot to fly me over there in our NASA jets. And uh, and so I saw him for the last time in the, the hospital. And he was thrilled to see me in this blue flight suit and to know I flew over there, you know, and and what used to be an Air Force jet. And I had an Air Force pilot. And they had a nice discussion because here, you know, this Air Force pilot astronaut meets a World War II pilot. And they just had a grand time talking. And 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 so it was I think it was. um, heartwarming for him to see me as an astronaut in my astronaut uh, flight suit and, and, and flying and how happy I was. And uh, so it was not a, 
you know, a depressing discussion. It was a very uplifting, you know, uh, inquisitive. He just had all kinds of questions about my training and my flying and all this kind of stuff. So he did not get to see me fly in space, at least not from the ground. He was watching from a better vantage point, probably. But he did know that I was an astronaut and I had stayed in touch with him about my training and what all I went through. And um, so he was very interested and excited about it. Jan Davis is our guest today, uh, retired NASA shuttle astronaut, three missions in space and a new book called Airborne that is due later this year. And it's a fascinating story that juxtaposes her career at NASA with that of her father, who she really didn't know that well, who had a, a pretty amazing uh, career and life of his own. As uh, and he retired as a colonel, did you say in the Air Force? Is yes. that right? Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you discovered it all late in life, and and yes. many years after he passed away. Um, yes. Let me ask you a couple of more uh, uh, questions before we let you jump about where we are with with spaceflight today and and NASA, because it's it's more forefront in the public's eye than it has been in a long time. As you know, there was a mm-hmm. there was a time when, and I, I sound a thousand years old when I say it, back when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> you know, when when astronauts were, were rock stars. They were, you know, as famous or more famous than movie stars, and they were heroes. And then, you know, as, as time went on, and it became a little more routine and it wasn't quite as, as, as big a deal. Uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't have baseball trading cards of everybody like we did of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, but in the last few years with the, the advent of privatization of space flight and, and NASA sort of getting back into the game, it's, it's risen to, um, a higher level of public consciousness. So uh, I know this is a big question and you may not have a, a short answer for it, but Overall, what what are your thoughts on the the privatization of space flight and these private companies uh, uh, coming on board? Well, I think it's great that we've opened up the opportunity for more people to fly into space. Uh, some of those uh, private private flights are suborbital, and and some are orbital. And so, the more people we can get into space to have the view of our Earth and to do science that benefits all of us, uh, the better off will all be. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, the opportunity for others to go into space. Um, and so <clears throat> I think it's great. And, um, you know, we're still flying the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. And so far that um, has also enabled more uh, private companies to fly uh, private astronauts to the International Space Station. So the low Earth orbit part of flying in space we have figured out, we collectively have all figured out. And so that's opened up um, opportunities for people. So where NASA is focusing now is the deep space exploration. Now that the low earth orbit part has uh, has in some cases uh, been commercialized or privatized in addition to the government presence um, and international presence, uh, we're, we're going the next step and going uh, out even further. Do you think uh, this you know, focus on going back to the moon makes a lot of sense? And and if so, does that mean colonization of the moon, or you know what's what's the battle plan, the best battle plan there? Yes, I think um, you know we have been to the moon before, and we have landed you know around the equator, near the equator of the moon, and on the light side of the moon. And so there's a lot more of the moon 
to explore that uh, we will we will learn a lot about colonization potentially. You know, how can we live off the re- the resources that we have on the moon? Uh, we'll be going to the dark side of the moon. What's that like? We'll be going you know closer to the poles of the moon. What will that be like? And so we'll be sending humans back to the moon, but in a different capacity and a different um, scientific mission, if you will, and um, to learn about the resources there to see if we can uh, have a colony on the moon. And so it's pretty exciting to think about uh, people going back to the moon. You know, we, we flew Artemis around the moon and we will fly a crew the next time we fly an Artemis around the moon. And then the next time we fly, the third time we fly Artemis, we land people on the moon. And, uh, you know, beyond that, we're hoping to take people to Mars. And so we have a lot to learn before we can take people to Mars. And so learning about the moon and life on the moon will, will be the next step before we can go even further. What, what was the coolest thing about those three missions? If there was one thing that you look back on and now that you've got the, you know, the, the leisure and the luxury of, of looking at it in the rearview mirror and you go, you know, this was the one coolest thing that happened to me while I was doing that. What would it be? Well, I'll have to say it was looking at the earth. Um, and there were a lot of cool things that happened, you know, from floating, which was really fun. Uh, and, and, you know, I enjoyed Did you get the sick? Did you experience. throw up when you were doing all I that? Not, I did not get sick, fortunately, Good. at all uh, in space. I just loved it. Uh, and we did some amazing science up there. And I, I deployed some things with the arm on the shuttle. But the best thing for me personally was looking at the Earth. Um, not only Can you describe that, Jan? Can you describe what that's like? <laughs> Well, it's, it's difficult, you know, because it's not a, it's not like anything else we've seen, because when you look at pictures or movies or whatever of the Earth from space, they just don't um, have the same do justice. that our eyes have. But it's just uh, and you're you're traveling along about five miles a second. So you're you're going along in a pretty good clip. So you can you can pick out cities and, um, you know, beautiful clouds and ocean um uh, formations and geological formations and just the different colors and um, the different, um, I don't know, different natural phenomena that you see. Uh, it's hard to describe, but uh, that that form on the earth is it, just magnificent. And, uh, you know, if I had any extra time at all, I was going to the window and looking at the earth. Um, and you have 45 minutes of daylight. 45 minutes of nighttime in one orbit. That's 90 minutes. And so you see sunrises and sunsets from space that probably if I had to pick one thing of looking at the earth, it would be the sunsets and sunrises. Because I mean, when the sun sets, you know, it just um, all of a sudden you start seeing kind of rainbow on the horizon of colors and the sun just kind of is bright and then it's just uh you know smaller and then a little speck and then it's gone and that takes maybe five to ten seconds so it's just uh wow every time wow (laughs) that you see one of those and then the reverse when you have a sunrise so it, it is difficult to describe but um 
it, you did a pretty good job beautiful. though that's pretty <laughs> awe-inspiring <laughs> it's beautiful so you uh you went on to work uh at nasa and headquarters there in huntsville uh for many years after mm-hmm. uh, you weren't flying uh anymore and then uh transferred to marshall space flight center and went on to work in the private sector um and, and as i said earlier uh, it's your life so maybe to you it's no big deal but there have to be times when maybe it's quiet and it's late at night and your husband's gone to sleep and you're sitting on the couch and and you got to have those pinch me moments and does that ever happen to you you go jesus christ jam what a life yeah i mean it seems like a dream sometimes you know it's like did i really go to space or was that a dream you know sure it has to be it has to be when your real life exceeds your wildest dreams it's an amazing thing you know well my guess i guess my general feeling is one of um being grateful for what happened grateful to our country that gave me the opportunity to explore in space and to be an astronaut grateful for my parents for providing you know the education I needed and the support I needed and I had great bosses I had great teams of people across the world really that supported my flights all three of my flights were international in nature and then um, just the opportunities I've had and I've, I've worked hard and taken advantage of those opportunities but i'm extremely grateful to all of the people who made it happen so that's my general feeling when i think about that I'm like, wow how could i be so fortunate to have all these great things happen to me and then when i was reading about my father and all the opportunities he had you know growing up uh and and learning to fly and then flying in the war and um the opportunities that he had also he worked hard and he um you know faced a lot of danger in his life as i did and so i think he would he would also say that he's grateful for the nation for um the opportunities that were given to him and and the air force and uh, and the people people in his life who made who made that opportunity available to him it's a pretty great country we live in, I'd have to say. Yeah, you agree? yeah. right. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm grateful to you for your time today. That's uh, that's Jan Davis. She's done a few things. She's been a few places. Um, look at this. NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal, Alabama Aviation Hall of Fame, Alabama Engineering Hall of Fame. And yet she graced us with her presence today. Hey, thanks for <laughs> chatting with us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Burke. I enjoyed it. Hey, good luck with the new book, Airborne, which is the fascinating story of of not only Jan's exploits, but those of her fighter pilot dad during World War II and and his subsequent career retiring as an Air Force colonel and how she discovered all these cool things about him long after he was gone. It's a a great read, and we're all excited to, to see that come out and see it in bookstores everywhere. Jan Davis, our guest today, former NASA shuttle astronaut. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for sponsoring the Big Time Talker podcast. Wherever you go, whatever you do today, make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.